Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. This is a passage that you, I would suspect you know fairly well. You may have heard it a couple times, kids. In fact, I believe I have already read it to Sammy in one of his young children's Bibles. And that's sometimes a, a challenge to preach on a passage that everyone knows before you start. And that's why I'm, I'm grateful for two of my Bible commentators on the shelves that I, I go to in this passage. And um, both of them said very different things. It was almost like they were commenting on a different passage, except what they were saying was com- complimenting each other. And so I've, I've woven a lot in here. Sometimes I'll quote them directly, but I just was very, uh, very much benefited from them. And so I wanted to... Give God praise for good uh, Bible commentators who can direct us in his word. Well, we will read this passage as we go through it. And so, start by asking you, what do you want people to say about you when you die? It could be many things you probably think about that you would like them to say. Uh, Many things that you've done, the way you've acted. But there's one thing in this passage that if you don't have, nothing else really matters. And that is that you are faithful to the end. You, you don't give up. You don't forsake the Lord. You hold on firmly to the end. That's what you see Daniel doing here. He's, he's now living in a change of power. And if you remember the chapter, the handwriting on the wall, he, it seems in that very last showdown with the King Belshazzar, he was thrust once again into the spotlight. And he gains the favor of Darius, the, the new king. He considers him his friend and he's back in the halls of power. And, and now he's not there as an up and coming political novice as he was perhaps as a late teenager, mid to late teenager, but now as a seasoned wise and veteran of perhaps 80 years old. Or even older. But once again, like in chapter 3 with the fiery furnace, we see a righteous Jew encounters opposition and a threat, and yet he stays faithful to his God. But I liked what one, one commentator said. He said, This chapter is not just a mere repetition of chapter 3 that tells you to resist the pressures of this world to conform. No, it tells you that you cannot hang your faith on the fruit of your earlier years. Listen to what the commentator says. He says, Chapter 6 is a necessary reminder that the life of faith must be lived to the very end and that earlier victories and rescues cannot be taken as guarantees of absence of future crises. As you grow old, you must grow into your maturity in Christ. God may have blessed you with a young life of passion and devotion, And you can't rest on that previous passion and coast into your middle years, into mediocrity. God may have brought you through much pain and trials in your earlier years. And you you can't then assume that just because you've gone through those things, that your latter years will be free. And you won't have new situations of difficulty. Be faithful to the end. And to do that in this passage, we'll see there's four ways that you are to be faithful. The first one is in the midst of persecution. Let's read the first ten verses. 
It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom a hundred and twenty satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to send him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint unless this Daniel, unless we against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. There's a power change. Daniel is thrust into the spotlight again. And he seems to make enemies pretty quickly in this new regime. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of racial tension here. You can see he's a Jew and they, they talk about that later. He seems to be on good terms with Darius, which probably makes him uh, a little bit envied. He's, he's high up, and whether they know this or not, he's about to get the ultimate promotion. Worst of all, Daniel is above reproach, as one commentator put it. Daniel 6 begins with a miracle, a squeaky clean politician. His job was to make sure that the king suffered no graft, no loss, and apparently he was pretty good at doing that. He was faithful. He was not going to look the other way, which, by the way, is the way society works in the, the ancient Near East, that sometimes the current Near East. He was not going to take a little cut out for his friends. Um, let's be honest, it happens in America, too. There was, a, there was a congressman from New York who was just sentenced for insider trading. Right? So all these things about Daniel rubs the other people the wrong way and they say he's got to go. And if we are going to get anything on him, it's got to be something with his God. Here's a point of learning for us. Daniel was blameless, he was excellent, and he was still persecuted. He still encountered, in fact, it caused more opposition. And may, may, we, may it just always be that, that at Faith Church, we as Christians are persecuted for being Christ-like and, and not for jerks and angry people uh, who have lost their influence in society. Right? As Peter says, if, if you are beaten for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. But if, if you are beaten for just uh, disobedience, then what grace is that? Right? But here's the best case scenario. Here's a righteous man. 
He's not seeking power. He's not seeking to destroy anyone. He's not in it for himself. And yet he still encounters hostile persecution. And that's going to be the, the way today. Uh, there is a, there is a, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Humanist Manifesto, but there was one, one written in 1933, and then there was a second one written in the 70s, and they basically say that we believe that any religious faith that talks about heaven or hell is unhelpful and is limiting to the human thriving and flourishing. It, it's, like, it's right there. We just disagree with you. We are going to push back. There's many other ways that we could talk about today in our changing culture that simply taking a stand, no matter how loving, is going to cause us persecution. So you know the story. The men go to Darius and they build a trap tailor-made for Daniel. I just want to stop for a historical point. Who's Darius? Right, we talked about Belshazzar, if you remember, if you were here for chapter 5, and how for, for a while, once... People got to the, the heyday of biblical criticism and doubting the Bible. There were no records of Belshazzar. And they said, well, here you go. Another instance of you know, biblical errors. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, you find that this Belshazzar guy really was there. And Daniel was accurate, right? Well, here's a, here's a case where we actually don't know. We need to be honest when we have gaps, just as well as make a good case when we have a good historical data. There is no known reference to Darius. What we do know, Darius the Mede, what we do know, of course, is Cyrus the Persian. Interestingly enough, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian are about the same age. So, so what do you do with this? Well, if, if you reject the idea that Daniel just got it wrong, um, there, there could be that Darius was a general that was in and kind of ruling in the city kind of as the provincial governor. Um, there could also be, the, the other one that I think makes a little bit more sense is that Darius is Cyrus, and it's just a different name. So if you look at the very end of chapter 6, uh, it says, verse 28, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That would make it seem like they're two different people, right? But there's another passage in scripture where it talks about an Assyrian king, and it talks of the reign of Tiglath-Pilaser and the reign of Paul. And we know they're actually the same person. And so the, some Bibles translate it, that is Paul. And so basically, it is possible that Darius and Cyrus are just the same name. Regardless, we don't know. Um, we, we have confidence in the scripture and we've seen other things. But, but whoever this Darius is, I'm going to assume he's Cyrus. He is in control. Which also makes the governor thing a little weird. If it was just a governor of Babylon, would they really be praying to him for 30 days? It seems like it's someone who's a little bit more elevated, right? And so they say, oh, king, here's an idea. Let it be you, the only one that we can ask for 30 days. Basically, will you be our high priest and mediator in a, in a way that's divine for the next 30 days? And of course, he, Darius is thrilled with this. Not only does this appeal to his vanity... But you could see how as a new king who has conquered Babylon, this would be a way to solidify his prestige and power. Everyone in all of the territories were, were praying to him for a month. So Darius signs the decree and it goes into law and they wait. And what does Daniel do? One commentator put it this way. If Daniel's enemies made a noose for him, Daniel stepped into the noose. 
right? They, they were just they were just camped out waiting. And yep, there he is. There he is praying. He goes up to his window and prays for Jerusalem. And, and as I was thinking about this text, I thought how remarkable Daniel's faithfulness was. Remember his life. He is an exile away from his family and a home. He is over 80 years old. In, in fact, as we'll, we'll see in chapter 9, um, chapter 9 is a vision of Daniel. She's reading the book of Jeremiah. And in the book of Jeremiah, it says, you know, after 70 years, I will bring my people back. And, and so he's praying, like, Lord, is the 70 years here? Is it up? I mean, it's been 70 years. What does this mean? And, and there's an angel that says, well, actually, Daniel, it's going to be a little bit longer than that. That may have already happened by this point. I'm not, it's, it's very close. So here you have this old man, and whatever hope of going home is gone. You can expect him maybe to be a little bit worn, a little bit jaded, you know, coasting on inertia. But after 70 years in exile, he is still seeking the Lord with such passion and consistency that he's a ripe target for his faith. And so Daniel is faithful to the end. He's willing to walk into the trap, and he goes to the lions. People of God, it's, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. We must be willing to count the cost just because of who we are as God's people. There may even be times where people set up traps for us. Sometimes you can be like Jesus and kind of turn a question with the question and you don't have to lead with the chin. But there's other times where you just say, you know what, this is filling up the sufferings of Christ. And it is time for me to suffer with him. Must be, must be faithful in persecution. You must also be faithful with power. Let's read the next 11 verses. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then the man came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to the, his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. At the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you have continued to serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Cliffhanger. Right. Uh, power. 
Daniel tells us something about power. His opponents were obsessed with power. They turned power into an idol and made it their god. They were willing to scheme and connive and even kill for more power. They wanted to get it. And yet Daniel once again here tells you that earthly power is fading. Let's look at King Darius. And isn't it interesting that this time Daniel has, he's the friend of the king, right? He's got the king in his court. Unlike chapter 3 where, where Nebuchadnezzar was the one who was furiously tossing his friends into the, the, the furnace. And, and what's more, he's the guy that everyone's worshipping as a god. There's a great irony here, isn't it? That, that the one who is worshipped as a god is not able to deliver his friend from death. Although he tries as much as he can, he let himself boxed into a political trap. In fact, the wily conspirators, conspirators make him repeat again, kind of leading him up to, remember, O king? Oh, yes, it's the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be broken. And so although he's worshipped as a king, he gets cornered by his own irrevocable law. He's powerless to do the very thing that he wants. That's how earthly power works. And, and he spends the whole night fasting and agonizing over his friend. And he comes very close to praying to Daniel's God when he says, may your God deliver you. He realizes it's out of his hands. If something's going to happen, it's got to be Daniel's God. By the way, sometimes people have this view of God really like King Darius, right? That he's just up there wringing his hands and very upset over what's happening and out of control. Um, that's clearly not what the story, the story shows, but that is kind of a, an improper view of God that people have. That's the false God. Those are the idols that we set up. And you know, this, this tells you that we should not put too much power in human leaders. You, it is so tempting to think, if, if you could just get the right leaders into office, everything would be better. You probably all have, like, you know, if I could, if, if just he or just she could get into the White House, man, wouldn't it be great? And, you know, Scripture says godly leaders are a blessing. We should pray for good leaders. They, they are important, but, but, but they're fallible. They're sinful humans. Even if they're good leaders, there can be catastrophes outside their control. They are not saviors. Earthly power is fading, and when power is pressed into idolatry, it becomes pointless. That's what Daniel's saying here. So you need, first need to have a, a proper view of power. And then Daniel says you need to be faithful as you use power. How do you do that as a Christian? Now, not many of us are in positions of, of high power, but some of you may be bosses or managers or you are stewards of, of certain um, assets. You're in a position of influence. And there's some themes throughout Daniel that I've just passed over that I'd like us to look at right here. How do you view, how do you use influence? How do you use power that is earthly? What, what Jesus might even call you know, unrighteous mammon, right? Those, those types of things. Well, Daniel says you need to open it, hold it with an open hand. And the books is actually very complex if you look at its attitude towards power and influence. It's not just a black or white, yay or nay, up or down. Sometimes it says that it is pro appropriate to pursue power. Do you notice in the very beginning of the book, Daniel and his friends enter into, they're forced into, but they accept a position of serving a pagan king. And then, I, I find this fascinating, when, when Daniel 
interprets the dream in chapter 2 that keeps King Nebuchadnezzar up at night, what does he do? He asks for promotions for all of his three friends. So there is a place to actually get Christian people, godly people, into a position of power. It tells you there's nothing inherently wrong with those positions. Um, And yet there are times when we need to be wary or even disdain power and influence. And in fact, you see this, this ironic thing that Daniel is a politician who is out of favor with the court for 20 years. Between chapter 4 and chapter 5, he's, he's just some nobody paper pusher or just part of the Jewish exiles. He's away from the favor of the court. How, how many times have you seen a politician who's disgraced and they're trying to get back to Washington? They're trying to get back to the thing that they love. Daniel doesn't seem to mind. In, in fact, when he gets recalled to Belshazzar's court to explain these visions, he's not saying, here's my chance. Now I can get back there. No, he, he says, keep your gifts. I don't, I don't want your offices. Now, how can Daniel do that? Because he knows what's real and what's not. He knows that human kingdoms will crumble and God's kingdom will last forever. Right? God, God simply, God didn't need Daniel to take care of Belshazzar. He simply removed him. Now, so in America, we, we have a privilege to at least be in some ways involved in our government. You can, you can, argue about how much voting affects things or not. Um, but we, we have that birthright, and so we should be involved. And yet, as American Christians, we need to make sure that we are not hoping for that next set of elections. Right? That's going to change things. That's what's going to make it go. But the, the kingdom of the Son of Man who cannot be shaken. That is our hope. That is our hope. And so we need to be faithful the way that we view power, the way we hold power, and not be caught up in the perks of crumbling power and even to be ready to give it up. You you know how Daniel could have humanly argued? Think about how he could have rationalized just putting a hiatus on praying. I'm not, I'm not, for 30 days, I'm just going to go on a prayer strike. I'm I'm not going to pray to any other God. I'm just going to not pray to Yahweh. That's, that's not negative, positively breaking the first commandment, right? And he could have said, you know, I, I, I'm about to be king over the whole land. Vizier of the... It's, you know, I am too valuable of a person to sacrifice right now, God. And it's not really me, it's my position. You could use me for so much good. And if, you, if, I, if I sacrifice myself, then what good can I do? He refuses that self-delusion and willingly lays down his life and his office. Perhaps this part of the sermon applies to me more than anyone else as an officer in the army. And if the Lord allows me to stay in 20 more years or so, I, I could could easily become a lieutenant colonel, possibly even a full colonel. That would be a little bit of a stretch, but it's within the realm of possibility. And with that comes, you know, with with... With a higher rank, with a higher prestige, comes greater visibility, comes greater perks, also possibility for greater persecution, because the higher you go up, the more visible you are. And wherever you are, when, when you're raising, you have to be willing to give that all away. Um, in fact, there was a, uh, we, we got to sit during our chaplain training with a captain, active duty, he was about to be promoted to a major. And he said, you know, let's be honest, for pastors, Chaplain sees a sweet deal when it comes to pay, active duty. And he said, but don't get hooked into that. Don't get hooked into that lifestyle they got you. 
He said, I live on an E6 pay, which is staff sergeant. It's about half of what he earned. He says, the rest is socked away. And if they say to me someday, we want you to do this, I can simply say, no, sir. I'll get my degree in England. And I'll continue to serve in the Lord. He says, don't get sucked into that. You know, understand that if God puts you in a position of influence, it may draw flack. And you may have to lay it down. That's that upside-downness of the Gospel. You think that, that passage in Hebrews 10.34 where he says, For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That comes with your influence too, that you're willing to lay it down. Well, how can you do that? How could Daniel do that? Well, you can be faithful because of God's protection. Let's finish the chapter here. Verse 21, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He rescues and delivers. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. God provides Daniel complete Protection, both from the literal and the figurative lions. You can see the figurative lions in this chapter, his tormentors. In fact, there's a a vivid phrase in the Aramaic that also occurs in chapter 3 when people accuse the Jews. And the phrase is, they ate the pieces of, ate the flesh of. Their accusations were like eating the pieces. They wanted, that's what they wanted for Daniel. They wanted him to be devoured. And, and God delivers Daniel in amazing um, fashion. Just as amazing, the, the writer doesn't go there to talk about the cool details of what it would have been like to be in the tomb. It's just uh, the lion's den. It was just, yep, God did that, of course. And, and God delivers Daniel from the lion's den. Now, this is not a guarantee that this will happen to us, but what it is is a picture of God vindicating a righteous sufferer. In the Old Testament, God's people developed this idea of there would be a person who was pure or blameless or a group of people who would suffer for being righteous and then earn God's approval. Interestingly enough, those people who were oppressed were often described as being oppressed by beasts. In fact, you might remember Psalm 17 that I I read that David was talking about being opposed and then he talked about his tormentors being like lions, right? Right? And, and you could also see this in Psalm 22, where David is crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, My enemies are like dogs. 
that surround me, that, that tear me apart. And, and then there's no animal um, imagery in Isaiah 53, but there's this idea again of the righteous sufferer, one who is oppressed, but will in some way be vindicated. And the hope emerges that this righteous sufferers or group of sufferers, which we'll look at in the next chapter, is that something that God will use to bring about his plan for Israel. They will be a pure, they will be abandoned, and then God will rescue them and bring them back from death and the whole nation with them. Well, Daniel is this righteous sufferer. As a young man, he's described as, as ritually pure, as blameless. He's persecuted for following God. He's utterly abandoned. The lion's den is quite literally, he's being thrown into the realm of the dead. And then he's, he's sealed and stamped in there. He's locked in. Now, Jesus on the road to Emmaus says, all scripture testifies about me. I don't think it takes much to connect the dots here, does it? Think about how, how he was laid in the tomb and how he was sealed, the perfect righteous sufferer. And when God raised him, he didn't just save his own life, but he defeated death. What Daniel's rescue here shows, um, shows what God can do, rescue his people. Jesus' resurrection shows that God has done it. And so no matter what persecution we face as a righteous sufferer, we know we have the final deliverance. And that the same God that stopped the mouths of the lions is the same God that will one day raise us from the dead. I love the dialogue in the scene from Lazarus Laughs, which I don't think is real, but the Emperor Caligula has Lazarus before him and says, Lazarus, renounce Jesus. And Lazarus says, or what? And Caligula says, well, I'll kill you. <laughs> right? And Lazarus just says, don't you know? Death is dead. Death is dead. <laughs> If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are to be most pitied. But if he has, then all other kingdoms are crumbling ruins. And we can be faithful to the end. As we do, there's one more thing to be faithful. Be faithful in your present challenge. If it were our brothers and sisters from India, we could stop right there. But I'm talking to you, I'm talking, I think talking to you as brothers and sisters in Christ, I believe, by God's grace, if we were confronted with a choose Jesus or die choice, that we would be faithful. I really do believe that we, the Spirit would give us the strength to give up our possessions, our, our lives. But pastorally, my concern is not that at a ripe old age, um, you, like Daniel, will have to choose between life or death. That is possible. My concern for us is right now. And you know, the book of Daniel is a comfort for persecuted saints, but it can also be a wake-up call for sleepy Christians. You know, we live in a time of discreet warfare, where Satan tempts you to rest on your previous passion, your yesterday drive, and your early accomplishments for the kingdom, so you can just take it easy now. That's, that's how he gets us so often today. Not, not the in-your-face challenge, but the subtle idolatries. You can coast into lighting your Lord because you're tired and, quite honestly, you know your Bible, so you can, you can fake it quite easily. As a pastor, I know how to do that. It's scary, right? You, you, you can coast in your ministry efforts because you've already done your time, or maybe you stopped doing the little things 
in your disciplines or your obedience to the Lord that, that, that draw you to Him and, and put the fuel in the fire and your life becomes crowded out with, with schedules or worries or entertainment. And before you know it, yeah, you're following the Lord, but the fire is gone. Then one day you wake up and realize that your love for God is cold and, and Jesus and his salvation, it's, it just seems like an impersonal reality. How, how do you stay firm to the end? It's by fighting for your faith now. Be faithful now. So I have two questions for you as you think about being faithful in the present. First of all, is there, is there an idol that I need to name? Is there an idol that I need to name and dethrone? This chapter talks about the futility of idols and how they, they are powerless and eventually bring death. Daniel's persecutors are thrown to the lions and destroyed. But not just the big ones. You know, the, the thing that you dream of when you're tired. The, the fear of the person that you're just, you can't bear to lose. It's what you ask to save you when time is hard in your life. Um, is there something that's just grown so big or, or just so persistent that it's eclipsing your love and joy for Jesus? Well, ask yourself that, and then is, ask God to grab your heart and take one step towards Him today. Perhaps something that you've, you've done in the past, whether it's scripture memory, praying with a friend, just getting 30 minutes by yourself and studying the Bible, and it's just, you know, it's gone by the wayside. And say, Lord, here I am. Grab me. Take my heart. Use me. And then step back and look at the lion's den and how it points to the empty tomb. Remember that if God is faithful, you too can be faithful to the end. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful that because you have your grip on us, you will not let us go. And nothing can pluck us from your hand. So Father, would you help us to run with discipline the race? Would you help us to throw aside anything that would hinder us? Spirit, would you identify in our lives joys and delights that have gotten too big and have crowded out Jesus? It is our prayer that when we are old like Daniel, whether it is a do or die once for all choice, or whether we are going home to see the Lord and we look back on our lives, we can rejoice at your grace and people can say, she was He was faithful to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.